Before we begin today, we're going to have a brief disclaimer. Uh, this docu- this uh, podcast does not contain any legal advice. This podcast was prepared with the assistance of PBSC, Queen's University Law Student Volunteers. PBSC volunteers are not lawyers and they are not authorized to provide legal advice. This document contains general discussions of a certain legal and related issues. If you have any legal advice, please consult a lawyer. And with that out of the way, we may now begin. All right, tort law. Tort law is the main method for settling dispute in Canada ever since we outlawed duels. It is the form of law that the average Canadian will interact with most in their life. From big things, from being struck by a car to dispute with one's neighbors over language used, torts is how we have chosen to settle our discussions. However, torts conjures up a certain view in the minds of some people. From the the classic ambulance chasing lawyer, typical scumbag character one sees on uh, television programs, Breaking Bad and the like, to, uh, of course, the often erroneously viewed myths of uh, the plaintiff who is uh, injured a lot less than they really are, who's uh, using a minor hit and run with somebody who looks like they have a decent amount of money to uh, profit for the remainder of their lives. Many people have seen this and have believed that tort law should consequently be reformed. Damages should be lowered. Uh, Standards of proof should be higher. This is not, however, the only view on this subject. Some have seen how tort law operates and believe, in fact, the exact opposite, that plaintiffs do not receive enough damages, that some things are, in fact, too hard to prove. This has gone back and forth between the courts for years, and though, of course, today we will not be unraveling the entirety of this topic, as it is rather complex, we hope to shed at least a little light on it. So I am joined today by Professor Mary Jo Maurer of Queen's University, uh, Professor of Tort and Family Law. Professor? Good morning, John. How are you today? I'm quite all right. Yourself? Wonderful. It's a beautiful late winter day out there. I'm, I'm exercising my Canadianness by spending time outside. <laughs> so how can I help you today? What would you like to talk about? Well, Professor, I would like to discuss uh, a few brief, a few things in brief. So to begin with, tort damages, are they too high? A simple answer is not in Canada. Uh, I think they're fair in Canada. You have to um, realize that there's two kinds of damages in tort law. There is damages for uh, the general pain and suffering that the plaintiff has. So uh, that's kind of a squishy number. And then there's damages for the specific things the plaintiff is going to need to go forward. Um, A wheelchair, maybe, uh, things that are not covered by OHIP, uh, incontinence supplies, physiotherapy, special glasses, um, renovations to one's home, home care, things like that. So those um, those are out of pocket damages. Uh, and have nothing to do with the pain and suffering part. So in Canada, we have um, a cap on general damages for pain and suffering. So it's it's interesting how we we got there. It's not by legislation. It's by case law. 
There is a case law cap that with inflation is now at about $480,000. So let's suppose you're, you're in an accident and you've suffered um, a really catastrophic injury. Usually that means brain damage. And often that's a car accident. So uh, assume that has happened to the plaintiff, they're going to need maximum special damages, out-of-pocket damages for um, things like looking after them. But they also get damages just for having suffered the injury. Mm -hmm. So that's your general pain and suffering damages. Those are capped. Um, and the cap goes up every year depending on inflation. So it, it's, you know, um, it really depends on the year how much the max is for that. And then we move our way down from that. So someone who suffered, say, a, a um, debilitating shoulder injury isn't going to get the same amount of money who ha as someone who has suffered, say, a brain injury. Mm. So I, I don't think they're, they're too high in Canada. I think most um, judges and juries are pretty careful in Canada about how much people get. All right. Uh, but Professor, at the same time, do you think it's at all possible that the system is, in its current form at least, too exploitable by potentially bad actors, whether within the legal community or within the general public who have found themselves uh, what they believe potentially is an opportunity for a sort of golden ticket? Uh, I mean, I think I, we're all aware of the stereotype. I would say no. People think that, and you have to ask, who are these people who think this? A lot of the people who think this are connected to the insurance industry or connected to that kind of big money. If you think about what happens to folks when they are injured and they cannot go back to their regular lives, you can understand why damage awards might move into the millions of dollars. I mean, it's this, is it possible to take advantage of it? It's very difficult to take advantage of it in Canada anyway. You have to come up with um, medical reports that talk about how much you can work. So, uh, for example, the plaintiff usually comes up with a working capacity assessment, which is um, a doctor report about how much work this person can do. Can they work at all? Or is their ability to work limited? And uh, don't forget, the claim is not usually against some rich person. The claim is usually against some regular person with an insurance policy. So it's, it's not about uh, taking advantage in that way. It's, it's more about making sure that the plaintiff can live their lives. Um, you mentioned Breaking Bad. I don't know if any of your listeners have seen Better Call Saul. <laughs> so Better Call Saul opens with a scam that Saul the lawyer gets involved with where he and some kids go out and they, they try to trick people into hitting them with a car. And then they try to do an off book settlement, you know, they, and they only, they only pick on fancy cars. That stuff doesn't happen. I mean, that's, that's not usual. So is it possible to take advantage of it? People try, do they get away with it? Not so much. There's a lot of, um, a lot of things that have to happen before a plaintiff gets an award out of a judge. Now, a lot of these things settle, but if you think judges are hard to get awards out of, you try fooling an insurance company. 
Insurance companies are very tight-fisted with their money. So is it possible to cheat in that way? I would say very, very difficult. You would have to, you would have to win the Oscar as a plaintiff. You would have to somehow convince independent medical folks that you um, have a serious illness when you don't. That's not easy to do these days. All right, Professor. Well, I, I, if we may uh, venture outside the legal realm uh, for a second, of course, uh, we, we all know where this uh, stereotype comes from in large ways, as you mentioned, of course, Better Call Saul, a series that this show will, undes- will unreservedly recommend to people. It really is quite excellent. Oh, it's uh, fun. What, yeah. what, has, what has been the impact, do you think, of, of media on, on this stereotype? Oh, my goodness. It everywhere. What a great question, John. Thank you for that question. Um, the impact of the media is, um, you can see it in the United States more than anything. Um, in, in my torts class, as you know, we talk about a, a case that happened in the United States, the um, hot coffee case. And hot coffee involved a, um, an elderly woman named Stella Liebeck. So Stella spilled some scalding hot coffee on her lap that she got from McDonald's and had third degree burns. Now, when you just hear this and she got $2 million. That was right out of the gate. That's what her jury damage award was. So the, there were certain very heavy hitting interests in the United States who tried to shut that down and bought media time, tried to convince journalists that this was outrageous, tried to convince politicians that this was outrageous. But when you look at the injury that this woman suffered And when you look at the fact that McDonald's knew years that people were injured by their coffee that was too hot, uh, the damage award that she received was more than reasonable. I mean, this woman went from being a very active senior, she was in her 70s and still working, to being someone who was crippled by her injury, had to go through many skin grafts. Uh, in a very intimate area of her body. So, um, yes, I think the media, at the behest of uh, um, moneyed interests in the United States, had a lot to do with this perception that people cheat and a lot to do with this perception that lawyers become ambulance chasers and they're looking for people who want to scam the system. So um, the impact of the media has been huge. I don't think it's correct or caring or um, reasonable. I think it suits suits, uh, big, big money interests. It doesn't suit the average citizen. Thank you, Professor. I, I, I certainly remember, though, though young, the, uh, the specific uh, case. And, of course, it was mocked up and down on, on daytime television. Oh, was it? Of course, uh, online by, by uh, online. And, of course, on, on so all let, the me, let me ask you a question, John. When you came to Torrance to study with me, uh, what did you know about that case? And from where did you know it? Well, uh, when I was younger, I remembered it from uh, John Stewart. Making uh, Jay making Leno making yes yeah make, well, making yeah. cracks about it up and down and themselves even pausing. Well, uh, maybe it's just a bit ridiculous. Coffee is obviously going to be hot. Oh. You know, do we really need to say that? Is that not uh, is, is that not ridiculous? 
Uh, but uh, later on, however, I have uh, some lawyers in the family and they were quite uh, insistent that no, it's actually, it's not a ridiculous ruling at all. And in fact, it might be, uh, it might serve Canada better to uh, raise the general cap if stuff like this can, uh, can of course yeah. happen, in, happen in this country. Yeah, it was, um, it was a misperception. You know, and this happens with a great many cases that we study. So you, the media grabs onto it and it, it's, unless you understand the facts and the law, it, it looks crazy. Isn't coffee hot? Yes, well, the problem for poor Ms. Liebeck was that the coffee was hot beyond all hot. Mm -hmm. It was too hot to drink. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, and it was certainly at the point where it would give you third degree burns if it landed on fair skin. Mm -hmm. So um, knowing that really changes people's opinion. I think um, it depends what media source as well these days, doesn't it, though, John? Mm -hmm. When you think about, you know, if it's the National Post, you might be a bit skeptical <laughs> because you may know where that's coming from. If it's the CBC, I tend to be a little more likely to think there's been some better journalism involved and a more careful look at the facts and, and the law. So, uh, yes, the media can have an enormous and uh, really quite unfair impact on what the public thinks. Mm -hmm. Well, well on, on that note, Professor, uh, of course, actually, it's, I may, uh, or from a fairly recent anecdote, I uh, was having, I had to burn a few things a couple weeks ago, and so I bought a jerry can. Okay. At our, home in, at our home in Florida. And on the can, it said very specifically, and I'll never remember this, do not throw into fire with gas in it. <laughs> Was, it was very specific. And I did think to myself, did somebody really need to be told this? Well, as it turns out, there actually had been a case in the United States wherein somebody happened to, uh, well, throw a not exactly empty jerry can into the fire for reasons that are not entirely clear to, uh, to anyone. And consequently, I believe it was in the state of Colorado, uh, they passed higher legislation around this, around the production of, of these sorts of cans. And it did, uh, based on a report from uh, John Stossel, was certainly impactful to many of the smaller businesses that manufacture this. And of course, it's not just jerry cans, it's all sorts of products. So has, would you say torts have had a, a, a negative impact on some, especially smaller actors, obviously the big insurance companies, nobody's really rooting for them, but the guy who manufactures custom bicycles in his backyard and somebody happens to do something that no one would find reasonable with a bike, but uh, might potentially happen to uh, win a certain award that forces this, this guy to install so many more safety measures and consequently has to shut down his business. Is this, uh, is this a real issue in the field, do you think? Well, I can't tell you if it's a real issue from a statistical point of view, but let us just unpack this a little bit. One of the reasons that we have legislation governing, governing safety standards for things that people sell to the public is to protect the public. So, you know, to say, well, we're, we just want to protect the little guy who's running a business out of his backyard. I give you the example that I have at home. I have chickens. I can't just sell my eggs. Mm -hmm. I mean, people do it. Farm fresh eggs for sale. Oh, yes. But um uh, my eggs are supposed to be inspected and they're supposed to be free from possible pathogens, right? So when we, and tort law is largely responsible for a lot of these kinds of legislation, legislative changes. So when you have someone who um, 
you know, is injured by a product. In Canada, we take a pretty strict view of that. So we don't really have strict liability when it comes to products in Canada, but we have such a high standard of care that it might as well be. Mm-hmm. So in some jurisdictions in the United States, they do have strict liability for products. Um, and if you your product injures someone, we don't care how much care you took. We don't care how careful you were. You injured them. That's that. Mm-hmm. So this tends to lead to... Um, legislation to protect the public. So uh, is it shutting down businesses? Is it a bad thing? Let's take your example of the throwing the jerry can on the fire. Um, people Remember too, that even with a smaller actor, someone who's running a business out of their backyard, for example, even those people have insurance. So most of the time, it's not a little business that's gonna go under, it's an insurance company at the back of it who is going to have to pay and they don't want to. So insurance companies are often the, the impetus behind that kind of legislation, you know, that they say, look, could you, I think we ought to have warning labels on here so that we can keep our profits and not pay it out. <laughs> so does that, um, does that make sense to you? Yes, people are, I, I think your question goes to this. Have we reached the stage where people are so dumb that we have to put seemingly crazy warning labels on things like plastic bags, uh, child's toys, cribs, jerry cans, things like that? Uh, I would say we were always there. I don't think that's, people, people do the daftest things, my heavens. The, what they what they do is just sometimes so silly. To me, this is not a failure of tort law. You're going to laugh, but I see this as a failure of science education. That people don't understand from a young age that gasoline is flammable, that you you can't um, you know put flames near it without expecting a big conflagration. Mm-hmm. So. You know, it's, I I don't see that as a legislative failure or a failure of tort law. I see that people are often incredibly poorly informed about cause and effect. Does that make sense to you? Absolutely. I I can't, uh, I can't necessarily say I I disagree on that. Yeah. Coming out of high school, not all that long ago, long enough to uh, be just, just a little scary at times. Uh, I can certainly remember that there was definitely a, crisis of education in some fields. Well, you know, one of the cases we talked about in class, of course, is the wagon mound. And the wagon mound is about a ship that causes a big blow up in Australia. And one of the things that nobody seemed to understand is if there's gasoline on the water, Mm. and there's a little rag on the water, if the rag catches fire, it's like a wick and it'll blow up all the gasoline on the water. Nobody seemed to get that piece in that case. It took a second iteration of that same set of facts for an expert to come forward and say, well, any good engineer would know that. So it's um, this lack of, of science knowledge, lack of understanding of cause and effect, I think is more to blame than anything in tort world. You are a smart man, so you would know you, one doesn't throw a 
a can of or one of those plastic gasoline containers on a fire. I wouldn't even throw an empty one on there, let alone one that has gas. First of all, we shouldn't burn plastic. That's no. a dangerous thing too. Yes. But um, you know, is this is this about tort law? Are we are we the nanny state overprotecting our citizens? I would say no. Um, I would say we are saving people with a poor science education from themselves. The ones that always get me are not the, the gasoline ones, but the ones with plastic uh, wrapping paper. So, you know, kids toys and things that come with the plastic wrapping and they all say the plastic wrapping is dangerous, keep away from children. That's the one I wonder why we have to have, but clearly someone did it. So that's, that's why the warning label is there. But I, I don't think it's uh, that you can blame tort law. I really don't think. I think that's, that's more about uh, protecting citizens. Sometimes we have legislation that requires these warnings. Sometimes it's just a prudent practice that an industry will engage in because they know they want to protect themselves from lawsuits. Right. So it, what's cheaper putting that warning label on or not putting it on and having someone sue the heck out of you for millions of dollars. So. And then having to pay us thousands and thousands yes. of dollars to ensure they don't yes. have to pay those millions of dollars. Right. So put the warning label on baby. That's, so, the, that's how that goes. All right. Thank you, Professor. Now, approaching this from a, from a different angle, we, I think we've definitely been looking at uh, our awards too high. But at the same time, I, I think a lot of Canadians can look to the United States and see many absolutely earned multi-million dollar settlements where somebody was completely behaving like an utter knob, driving far too fast down the road, drunk, uh, un unbelievably will, you know, bordering on uh, unwillfully reckless, you, you could say in how they constructed something, they consequently injure somebody and the plaintiff rightly, both to punish some large corporation or some particularly uh, particularly unpleasant individual awards millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars uh, in damages. If, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the largest technical tort settlements in American history top out at well over $25 million. And of course in Canada, one, Due to the due to the cap on on certain damages, obviously people don't really win amounts like that. So, would it be good to potentially raise the uh, the caps the caps in this country to raise the cap on general damages? You mean yeah. pain and suffering, damages for pain and suffering? Um, there's that's a good question. There's two sides to that one. Um, on one hand, damages for pain and suffering are simply a damage for having suffered the injury. They're not meant to cover the cost of medical care going forward. So should we increase it? Uh, it does increase with inflation. Um, it's possible that we might say, you know, gee, life is, life is more expensive the cost of, of losing your ability to, to do all these activities that you love to do um, should therefore be reflected in a higher award. Um, that would have to happen either by legislation or by a new case, right? So, 
I mean, I don't think there's going to be much interest in legislating a higher cap. Um, I think that's unlikely to be a popular political strategy for anybody. Um, and could a judge do it or would a judge do it? Unlikely. We have now um, decades of using this case law cap um, without much difficulty. Where the money starts to get uh, big is in the cost of caring for someone who's had a catastrophic injury and keeping up the best quality of life we can for them. Because remember, um, uh, the rule about tort damages, we try to put that plaintiff back in the position they would have been in, but for the negligence of the defendant. So hmm, we can't really do that with someone who's that badly injured, but we can do our best insofar as money can do it. So I, I like what Canada does. Canada puts a cap on that soft number, which is, um, so that to me is more explainable, more sensible. Uh, look, here's some money just for having been injured, approaching half a million dollars these days. I want you to, you quite rightly ask the question, should we raise it? What does half a million dollars buy you anymore? Mm -hmm. Right? Okay. Like, I always, the standard in society is always, let's compare it to, could, could you buy a house with it? You could, but it would likely be in Sudbury. So... <laughs> Yeah, well, not, yeah, not really. Yeah. Maybe not either. Yeah, so even, even here around Kingston, like I live in the country out here, prices are insane. So is half a million dollars enough when you look at the cost of regular things like shelter or food? Perhaps not. You know, um, perhaps that cap needs to go up. Now it will go up with inflation and inflation is higher this year. So next year we can expect to see a lift in that general pain and suffering uh, damage. But um, you know, where it's really, where it really gets pricey is when we talk about the cost of, of things like special glasses, wheelchairs, uh, just, just gas money, getting to and from medical appointments, all these extra costs that they, successful plaintiff will now have. So um, those things are the things where I'm glad Canada has no cap. Now, as you now know, in some jurisdictions in the United States, there's also a cap on that kind of damage. Mm -hmm. To me, that's uh, dangerous and, and not fair to the plaintiff. I, a cap on general pain and suffering, I can kind of see that. Otherwise, where would it end? And we would have inconsistency everywhere. Some judges would think a busted shoulder was worse than, uh, you know, a brain injury, unlikely, but there would be a lack of consistency. And as we've discussed in class, of course, where you have no predictability, um, where you have no consistency, you don't have justice. So um, keeping the cap there, not a problem. Putting a cap on the kind of damages that pay for things that the injured person needs, that's, that's dangerous to me. That's not, not a fair thing. Um, and I would, I would say there should never be a cap on those things. That should just be a matter of evidence. People come into the courtroom and say, here's my, you know, here's what this is going to cost going forward. Here's what we predict my um, recovery will look like. Here's the, uh, I may never recover completely. So this is going to be lifelong stuff like that. That's all just evidence. So um, 
Should we increase the general pain and suffering cap? As long as it's increased across the board, right? As long as it's the same for everyone, then uh, possibly, possibly in this market, that would make sense. All right. All right. Well, Professor, to uh, to back to something that you, uh, you you mentioned earlier, and of course, looking to American jurisdictions with uh, that actually do have these these caps on on uh, general damages and the like. Is potentially the the discussion of tort reform in the United States and and to a to a lesser degree up up in Canada, is it uh, is it simply a tool of the insurance companies and of uh, particularly moneyed interests in this area to attempt to escape from a certain degree of of liability when they or you know their clients especially, I think as uh, research tends to bear out on this field doctors. Uh, are guilty of, of some form of uh, rather gross negligence that impacts a person, you know, up to and including including their debts. So is the, are these caps really pushed by, uh, I suppose let's call them bad actors, or at least people with less than, than all. They're pushed by insurance companies and, and chambers of commerce and big, big people with money in the United States, right? And um, the reason is that if insurance companies are a very wealthy part of the economy. When you think about insurance, everybody is supposed to have it if they drive, everybody. So that means everyone who's got a car has to have insurance. So when you multiply that by the number of people who drive, uh, you can see what a wealthy business insurance is. So of course they wanna hold on to their profits. So yes, um, tort reform in the US is 100% driven by that, by the profit motive. And of course, people with money tend to use their money to elect legislators and elect people to represent them. Uh, and they tend to throw tons of money at it, which means you may end up with people in positions of power and government who uh, support tort reform. You know, um, doctors are an interesting, uh, an interesting thing. You know, for lawyers, if we make a mistake, our personal premiums go up, but the premiums for the rest of the uh, our cohort don't. So it's very personal for a lawyer, right? If, if I make, them an er make an error, my personal premiums go up the following year because our insurance had to pay it out. It's not true with doctors. Doctors belong to a group. So if one doctor in the group, say gynecologist, makes an error, um, then their personal premiums don't go up, but the premiums for the whole group might go up a little bit, mm. right? So it's, it's a different kind of thing. The Canadian Medical Association uh, that provides insurance for doctors fights fiercely, fiercely. Oh, yes. to protect the insurance fund, mm. right? Now, our, our insurance company, LawPro, also fights extremely fiercely to protect us from claims, right? So um, I remember talking to one lawyer who works for LawPro and she said something like, well, that'll teach them to sue a lawyer. And I, so yes, there are some pretty powerful interests, certainly in the US that believe tort reform is the way to go. It's, it doesn't seem to be as much of a movement in Canada. In the US, it's massive, mm -hmm. just massive. And it, it, it's a constant refrain. We need tort reform because people cheat. Do they though? 
do they really cheat? Or do you just want to hold on to your money? I think the latter is probably more likely the, the, the way, certainly in the US. I guess the legit question is, is this going to travel north? Mm. Uh, some things, some political ideas, of course, have traveled north that we may not like so much. So it doesn't seem to be, but it is possible, I suppose. Mm. All right, well, thank you very much, Professor. That's, uh, that's uh, it's greatly appreciated. Now, if we may move on to something that perhaps the audience will find a little less interesting uh, from a general perspective. Oh, don't say that. Lawyers <laughs> might, uh, I'm sure lawyers might enjoy it. Of course, we've been going over uh, the last couple of days in class, uh, ex Turpicausa and uh, Valentino Fittinieria and a number of the other doctrines, and of course, reading even cases from the 60s decided by the House of Lords and the Supreme Court of Canada. The justices actually quite often seem rather, justices and law lords, of course, seem often a little nonplussed about these doctrines. They don't seem to hate them, but especially with Valenti reading it, the courts not do have not done away with it, of course, but they seem to be far bigger in just applying contributory negligence in those sorts of cases. So with some, some of these doctrines, assuming, of course, somebody's approaching tort reform from an angle not to uh, get out of paying money, but simply to rationalize the legal system in a way. And of course, you know, Ontario is where uh, old legal doctrines get to live on well past their shelf life elsewhere in the country. Would it not maybe be an idea? And I know the Law Reform Commission has made these suggestions in the past to do away with certain legal doctrines in this province. Which one would you do away with? Well, I'm not sure. You know, actually, I quite like, uh, I, I like Turpy. And, uh, but, you know, when it comes to Valenti, reading it, of course, we've been doing in uh, ILS, Cowles and Black, where it is mentioned. <laughs> I'm sick of that face right now. Yeah, well, yes, you know, it's, uh, it is. It is a All right, well, let's, for your audience, talk of a little bit about what each of those doctrines is. So um, Valenti non-feed in urea means... Uh, if you volunteered for something, you can't then complain that you got hurt. Did you volunteer? Uh, so that's a complete defense to a negligence claim. It's one of the best defenses to a negligence claim if you can make it out. So it, it tends to happen when a plaintiff is involved in a risky activity. So, you know, something like uh, uh, bungee jumping, um, you know, horseback riding, you name it, skiing. Going into a cage with a tiger. Right, or going to the African Lion Safari, right? Going to a safari park where there are wild cats and that kind of thing. So most people who run those kinds of businesses are smart and they know what can happen. And their insurance companies usually encourage them to have a waiver that their plaintiff sign or that potential plaintiff sign. So, you know, those waivers are really pretty good and most of the time they hold up they're a contract mm -hmm. so as long as the person knew that they could be injured uh knew that they were giving up their right to sue for that injury so they have to know those two things then the defense is a good one i have no problem with this this actually supports the general uh law the general rule we have about tort world which is you're entitled to your autonomy. You're entitled to um, make individual decisions, even if you could hurt yourself. So there are some things that we say you can't do, even if you would hurt yourself. But for the most part, 
Do you want to go bungee jumping and you know you might smash into the rocks on the way down and you sign a waiver? There you go. <laughs> Lesson learned. Mm -hmm. So I, I mean, I think Valenti is a, I would never do away with Valenti. Exterpy causa. No, it means you can't profit from your own wrong. And of course, there's defined profit. Um, that the classic cocktail party question is if a burglar breaks into your house and they slip on a rug in your house, mm -hmm. can, can they sue you for negligence for having a slippery floor? Well, you know, many, many years ago, back in the 1940s, uh, the provinces across the country instituted occupiers' liability legislation, just to clear that up, to say, oh, because technically, are, are you profiting from your own wrong if you're suing someone for compensation? Uh, maybe not. Maybe you're just getting paid back for someone's negligence, but it's really, it's really smells bad, right? Like it just doesn't pass the sniff test. Or as my musician friends say, it stinks out loud to have someone who potentially uh, could be seen as assuming a risk by breaking into your home who then gets injured. Are you really gonna say that that homeowner has to compensate them? So the legislation says that with people who wanna break into your home and commit a criminal act, they are deemed to have assumed all risks. So we turn it into a Valenti situation. We say they're deemed, if they're, breaking into your house, first of all, the break-in is a criminal act. And then they wanna do further criminal acts like steal from you. They're deemed to have accepted all of the risks of negligence within your home. The only way that they could sue you is if you set a booby trap for them. So I don't know, I, I always think of some big, big, like a, a leg, leg hole trap or something like that. Or a, or a gun that goes off automatically. You can't do that. But if you've protected your home with a lock or, you know, an alarm system or something, and someone breaks in anyway, they're not going to be able to sue you under the legislation. Um, similar for trespassers. Trespassers aren't always intending to do something bad, but they really shouldn't be on your property. So for the most part, same deal. Trespassers are deemed to have accepted the risks of being on your property um, and as long as it's not like a booby trap or, or gross, gross negligence, something like that. So um, I, I would never do away with either of those. I think those are handy doctrines. Um, you know, uh, it's a handy way to, to separate good claims from bad claims. All right. Well, thank you very much, Professor. It would appear as though our time has elapsed. The uh, Pro Bono Student Association very much like to thank you for your time. Hope oh, you I'm honored. I'm honored to have been asked, John, and it's so good to see you. You know, I, I hope this is uh, interesting and useful to folks, and thank you for inviting me. Of course. Anytime. Thank you all for listening. I hope you have a pleasant day.